today in the Marshall Pruitt podcast, we have a most special episode for you. This is the My Racing Life and Career series. Don't get to do these as often as I would like to. This is captured in 2019, the Long Beach Grand Prix, about five blocks away from where the event is held with George Mack, the last African-American person to compete in the IndyCar series. This dates back now 18 years, 2002. George, a rookie with the 310 racing team, had one and only season in IndyCar, gone on to a life that includes many things, successful businessman, continuing his athletic endeavors. But I wanted to know about George because his entry into IndyCar followed one year after my final, my final season working for IndyCar teams, 2001 in the Indy Racing League with Sam Schmidt Motorsports. George followed in 2002. It's always curious about him, not just because such a rarity as an African-American race car driver in IndyCar, but his story of where he came from and how he got there. So I'm so thankful to George, who spent about two hours with me at Long Beach. Boy, did we have some fun. Of the things that really, really stood out, we'd just gotten into the interview. It just started. He was mentioning his father and his mother and his upbringing, and his father walked into his business, an auto repair shop. And it was the most amazing coincidence knowing that they don't see each other nearly as often as they would like to. So Mr. Mack, Mr. Lloyd Mack, came in and sat down and joined in for about an hour or so of the conversation. So father and son, it was such a beautiful thing to be able to have them there together. We only had two microphones, handheld microphones, so done my best to extend it to Mr. Mack so we can hear him clearly. This was a frank conversation. I have not gone through and tried to clean up and clear out any of the curse words. There aren't many, but it's how the conversation was held and I wanted to preserve it as is. So if you are one who is not keen for hearing words that would certainly not make your pastor happy, this would be an episode to skip. You have been forewarned. We'll also mention that since we are sitting almost on the street, a very busy street in Long Beach, you hear ambulances, police cars roll by throughout the interview, and just business and folks coming in and things taking place. And it will also say that towards the end, you'll hear some music coming in off of the television. This was the day where in Los Angeles, memorial was held for the recently slain Nipsey Hussle. So this was... It was a busy day, but thanks to George, he helps unwind what might be one of the most insane stories about an IndyCar driver you'll probably ever hear. It's not the first time it's been told or been documented, but being able to listen to George about where he came from and all of the experience he did not have in getting into his one and only season in IndyCar. Some of the things that he shares with us, which he says he's never told before. Some amazing, amazing gestures that took place. 
everyone from Tony George to Chip Ganassi, so many folks that ended up rallying behind their program. So let's get going here with George Mack, my racing life and career, a truly, not just talented, but extraordinary and exemplary human being. All brought to you here in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, presented by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets, USA. I just wanted to start out with you being a Southern California guy. Right who, at least if we're talking the uh, junior open wheel, Formula Atlantic, this kind of thing, Indy Lights, there's often a pipeline that we see before folks get to, say, an IndyCar level. Your story, I thought, was fascinating because you were an IndyCar. Right. We didn't have you for 10 years on this or whatever amount of years right. on that kind of high-profile uh, open wheel ladder. And so when that when you came in in 2002, I said, now this is a fascinating guy because he's here in a way where we're having to learn a lot about who he is and also look at the racing. Tell us about where you come from. Tell us about your family and just your roots. Uh, my mom and my dad both work for the city of Los Angeles. Um, my mother was an investigator for the district attorney, so she's an officer of the court. My dad is an engineer for the city. So a real smart guy, scientist guy. Before we even got into go-karts, um, he's always been a motorhead. So he, um, before even go-karts, we had motorcycles. And uh, my mom was a little bit afraid that I'd kill myself a motorcycle because I was very aggressive, <laughs> not a lot of fear. Yeah. And so she said they asked me when I was five or six, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said I told her a race car driver. And uh, they took it seriously, apparently, and ran with it and just supported the go-karting uh, from uh, 10 or 11 years old all now, the way through. Were you doing any other sports or athletics, or was this kind of your uh, primary uh, way into sport? Well, tried basketball. I was fair. Tried baseball. I was fair. Like uh, I'm raising my hand right now on right. both of those two. Soccer, I was fair. So my dad was trying to find what my passion was. He had another friend that worked for the city that drove city buses. And, you know, back then, in the 80s, you know, they made pretty good money also. So sure. this guy named Al Evans and his son, Sean, were racing go-karts, their father and son sport. Wow. So my dad came to me and he says, hey, uh... I want to take you over so you can check out one of these go-kart races. You think maybe you can drive one of those things? And I remember saying to him, brake on the left, throttle on the right. And he goes, yeah. <laughs> Turn left and right. So it didn't sound that hard. Yeah. They had a race in 1980 at the Queen Mary. This is where go-karts started, this fun stuff. At the Queen, in the Queen Mary parking lot. I went to see the race. His friend's son was racing. And uh, I said, yeah, I could kind of get into this. And I'm telling you, within a couple of weeks, my dad came home with a go-kart in the back of the truck. <laughs> and we were off and running. And since he was an engineer, he, um, he got a hold of the rule book. No one would tell us anything. No one would help us or give us any information. Uh, according to a few, we didn't belong there. We weren't supposed to be there, these kinds of things. 
So that just made my dad more determined. Stayed up late at night, put together a shop in our in our garage at home. Bought all this equipment, lathe, end mills, all the stuff. Micrometers. He knew how to operate these things anyway. Now, as a kid, a young kid, the "you don't belong here" thing. I'm sure. Well, I don't. I shouldn't say I'm sure. I don't know if that was a first primary example of feeling and receiving that. This is crazy, Marshall. My dad just walked in the front door. Really? Can we put this on hold? Please, please. Just got started, and I was telling him how you took me to see. Uh, Al and Sean over at the Queen Mary. Right, right. And I was just start. He, George had mentioned there might have been some comments about not necessarily belonging there. And I was asking him at a young age if that was one of the first examples where he felt or received that. Because I love the reaction to it was, really, we're going to go buy every damn thing. We need to do this ourselves. And you can't take it away from us if we own it. Exactly. I tell you, it, it was quite interesting because that was a group during that time that was the best in the country. When I say the country, I don't mean this country. I'm talking about best in America. This young group, champions and all of that, and we come along, and the Queen Mary was a big event. So with it being a, a, a big event like that, clearly they had a, a pecking order. Mm. These two supposed to run for the win. Uh, uh, or was it three of them? Was Rodriguez there also at that time? Who? Rodriguez. Rodriguez was there. It was the two brothers. They had the Chevrolet dealership, right? Right. So and it was the two brothers, Rodriguez brothers, Lee Hatch. Lee Hatch and Burris. And, and, and Burris. Right. And Derek Burris. Clearly the best in the country. And we kind of showed up and... <laughs> Ended up with a little discussion early. Did you remember to tell him? Yeah. Ended up with yeah. a little, little discussion, and when I was younger, I could get really excited. I could go along with it to a point, but when it was all over and done, it didn't tend to shake him much, and he proceeded to dominate the event. <laughs> was that our first race? The first major race. So we won that one, right? Won that one. Yeah. So what, Grand Prix. what was that like for you, George, as a kid who's trying different sports, trying to see what fit? Hmm. It's one thing, you know, this gets spoken about a lot. It's pretty easy for any kid who wants to be a basketball player. Right. For your 10 bucks, you get a basketball. You got a pair of sneakers. Practice, there's a hoop all, nearby. You, practice all you want. 24 hours a day. You're going to hone that thing. Mm-hmm. Stepping into a go-kart, a race car. That's that's foreign territory. It's you kind of figure out whether you got it or you don't right away. What was that? Was there a feeling of like aha? Did it feel natural? Was there elation? What was it like? More natural, but there was more than that. I just had a huge pair of bowls. Didn't care about anything. We'd crash those things, tear them up, and he'd <laughs> buy another one. And he would say, "Don't worry about it. I'll buy you another one. They're not going to outspin me." And then we'd come out in a new one, fix it, dust myself back off, and hit it again and um it there was just there wasn't any fear it just wasn't any fear it just felt kind of natural also, I, I, I should remember i asked him i think he said can you think you can drive one of these things and i remember i was pretty little and i looked up at him i said it didn't seem very hard what did i know yeah but uh turned out it wasn't very hard for me it wasn't very hard so that was my sport and they were trying to find my sport the motorcycles the, the little league and then the go-kart I just kind of took to it, and then he stayed up late at nights and got the rules on it, figured out how to build the engines along the way, 
and it just worked. What was that like for you, Mr. Mack, knowing that if I'm thinking about most kids this weekend, their parents are going to throw them in the back of the SUV, go to whether it's a park, uh, they'll go somewhere with the kids to do something, sit in the stands, watch them, cheer them on, other than driving them back and forth and maybe bringing some orange slices, right. it's kind of a passive role. This almost feels like a second job being taken on, a positive one, but this isn't something easy where you drop George off to go be an excellent carting prodigy. You're going to have to put in a lot of work yourself. Was that something you enjoyed or welcomed? I don't know if George had told you. I had been involved in racing, yeah. and, and at the time, I was uh, building Indus, building chassis at Ascot Park. Are you familiar with the old Ascot Park? Absolutely. Okay, well, it's a long story, but some of the best that came to Ascot Park, I was actually behind the scene doing the building. And as a matter of fact, I did. I had done a certain amount of racing myself that didn't go real well, because I actually won at Ascot Park, and they sent me the trophy in the pit. So, so I was used to how tough right? it's gonna be. Stories, right? Yeah. Uh, and and that's another whole another story. But bottom line is, uh, some of the best that raced at Ascot Park had, had he was familiar with them, and and really. I told him, you know, he showed a little interest, maybe want to do go-kart racing. So so that's how we went down that pathway, and he was just totally a natural at it. Long about the time these individuals, you remember Ed Cyrus came out and watched Ron and said, oh, do. we got to do this, we got to do this. So right off, because of winning, these individuals, big time winners at Ascot Park. So we understood chassis setup and all of that. So so right off, uh, we, we did go down the pathway. But when he showed the interest, I was gonna do the typical. I went to one of the big engine builders in the country at the time and wanted to just buy an engine. And they told me, you don't really need this level of engine because it'll take a while for this boy for this boy to be able to learn this mm. take you a year or two before you need this level of engine well needless to say that thoroughly upset me <laughs> and you would have to been down that pathway because I had a pretty extensive automotive and technical background sure. so in that way during the day I don't know if you told him I used to wear a straw hat and bib overalls but quite frankly, a straw hat and bib and, overalls and overalls I grew up in the country, so yeah. it's all Cowboy. But the hardcore fact is I had a pretty significant job for the city of Los Angeles in the automotive field. So I wasn't just just arrived. So long about time he said he wanted to do it, and this fella told me about I couldn't even buy a quality in him because he wouldn't be ready for it for a couple years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It didn't take us but a few months to make our statement. <laughs> and, and early on, we used to go down to the track, and he, he drove, would drive a cart all the way off the track. We went to Adams Motorsports Park, and they would just call it Adams Cart Track at that time. And a lot of kids, when they first started out that age, they'd go out and putt, 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 and putt, putt, putt. Over a period of several months, it got going. First time we put him in the go-kart, he pushed the pedal, drove it all the way off the track. <laughs> and, 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 and we used to, you typically had basic spare parts that you did have for these go-karts. He used to drive go-karts off the track so often, crashed it so often, 
that like individuals would have spare spark plugs, spare tires, things such as that. I had spare floor pans. That's what fit on the bottom because the track was so rough with rocks and everything off the track that, I mean, it had choices. I could have said, slow it down or just simply go get more floor pads. <laughs> he shows the latter of the two. Well, but that, but that also speaks to a... Uh, a fairly common thing that you know about in racing, of course, which is it's easier to slow someone down than to speed them up. Right. And so if you're showing that speed right away, it's easier to adapt to that than to keep trying to kick you in the behind, say, mm. no, 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 that thro- there's mm. more throttle there for you to find. George, you mentioned before we started recording that in this family racing effort, not only are you proving your skill as you're growing and learning, but there are some other families in racing, some names that folks might be surprised who went on to, you know, uh, extensive IndyCar careers, team owners, NASCAR champions. I mean, there's a lot of folks that uh, the Mack family helped work with in this kind of coming up stage. Yes. Tell us about that, because I think that's fascinating, too. Um, Herda was our customer for how long? I was, I was just getting ready to say, I take it this from where you talk, you fall race. So you familiar with Brian Hurd's son, who's on the mm-hmm. good for really hard Absolutely. Huh? Yeah, as, as a matter of fact, uh, and you probably know Giebler, Buddy Rice, these individuals to this day, I still kind of stay in touch. So we did come along and work with several different individuals, Drag Race and Pentagon Brothers. So there's a few of them out there that we're fortunate that we continue to uh, kind of stay in touch and really enjoyed working with them through the years back when they were little ones. Now, he raced with a lot of them. Herda, you know, he and the dad have always been great people. That was the text I just got from him. I had communicated with Brian Herda. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so, so bottom line is... We worked with a lot of individuals that did go on do big things, and a lot of them, when they did a, obtain great success, they still stay in touch. You know, still touch bases. I with, talked with to Brian like that. here and there. Saw him at the Grand Prix last year. He ran over, gave me a hug, and he's still married to the girl, the girlfriend he had when we were kids, uh, Jeanette. Yeah. So um, he's known her, I think, since we were 14 or 15. They're still married. But uh, I mentioned, uh, yeah, Kevin Harvick. Tell us about that, too, because, again, folks get to know and see drivers when they're on TV every right. week, but don't always realize that there's often a, a, a tight community there in is. whatever region in the, in the country where you got a bunch of, you know, bunch of talent coming up. Right. Now, uh, you know, he was pretty decent at his track, but, you know, we'd go to Bakersfield and whoop on him over at his own track. And... Um, you know, he and his dad kind of had a weird relationship at the time, and I believe you still see it now. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think they really speak. I'm not really sure at this point. But every once in a while, you know, I still talk to him a little bit sometimes on Facebook here and there. And, um, you know, there were just certain things that, uh, that are always going to be different for minorities. It's just the way it is. It's not a crutch or a handicap is what makes us, I believe, just a little bit different. Um, but, you know, they were always cool to us. But, like I said, we'd 
show up at his track in Bakersfield and whoop on him there, and he'd come down here, we'd whoop on him down here, and Buddy Rice, uh, you know, Buddy Rice is, and, and my dad, you know, they've been friends for, for years, and uh, we did a lot of things for, for the Rice family as well. I spent the night in their, their house over in Arizona, they'd come down here, we'd, um, you know, we'd be at the track. You built uh, Buddy's motors also, didn't you? To yes. Build their motors also. Um, and uh, Alex Barron. Mm. Alex Barron and Richie Hearn were the other ones. So it was always Alex Barron, Richie Hearn, and myself. Between the three of us and then sometimes Buddy, uh, we'd kick the shit out of each other on the track. We'd crash each other, but it was always us two or three up front long gone. And then try to figure out who's going to get the win. And so... The, but the ones that have the real natural talent, I would have to say, other than me, I would believe, is Buddy Rice and Richie Hearn. I'm sorry, uh, Richie Hearn and uh, Buddy was pretty decent, but also um, Alex Barron. Yeah, yeah, I got to work with Alex and uh, Richie. Great people, great people also. Um, even Hearn. But yeah, growing up, we took go-kart to a, another level, and it was a physical sport. But they didn't whine about it. A lot of the people whined about it. We turn the damn things over, crash them, tear them up. And at this time, this stuff is not cheap. No, no, no. It was not cheap. And so he was paying, you know, for the lion's share of all this stuff I was tearing up. But we'd come right back next week. We'd sometimes have physical altercations at the tracks. Police were called. <laughs> oh, uh, come home battered and bruised and go right back next week. So what was this evolution process like for you George, because again, having heard your name for the first time back in the day on a karting level, I didn't know how long karting uh, was a staple in your life. If there were efforts or opportunities to try and move into car racing and such, I'm curious if there, what timeline there was where you kept karting, but maybe there were some efforts to try that. Formula Ford 2000, Atlantic, or otherwise. In the back of my mind, as I you know aged a little bit, it was always, it was always in the back of my mind. Yes, um, but I knew that if you can drive a shifter car on the dime, you can drive pretty much anything. Which is the reason why a lot of these guys never left that, even though they might race professionally. Like Jimmy Johnson, he actually was good. He's good in a go kart. If you can drive one of those things, makes it a lot easier to transition. Now. Along the way, you know, I uh, represented the U.S. at the World Championship, so I got to travel a bit. Went to the Netherlands, and then we ran in um, Argentina. 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 And uh, we were the highest American there you know, for a while, but we went there handicapped also. But, because we didn't have all the, the good stuff they had. But, it was still an experience, and I came back here, and I think after all of the... The, the hoopla, the news came back and then uh, we had a missed call from Michael Andretti. Really? They were looking for me and they called um, uh, called the go-kart track. Adams kart track. Back then. 2000 or 2001 I want to say. And so that deal kind of got convoluted. Couldn't put it together. Then soon after that was able to put together the 310 deal after that, but I believe it was based off the momentum. Mm. Um, a lot of people did ask, how do you go from a shifter cart 
jump over all this and then do your rookie test in an IndyCar, I think it was still, it was 68 laps. So the, at the time, it was still the fastest um, rookie that had ever gotten it done in that many laps. Because what they do is, you know, there's directions that they give you to, for car control, things like that. Um, and so I think mine was like 68 laps, I believe, and that was actually the shortest in history, actually. Where was this? Uh, Homestead. Homestead, Florida. Back before Homestead was changed. Mm-hmm. It was flat H- at the time. Homestead was one of the most difficult tracks. Never practiced, never tested an Indy car, and went straight to a test at Homestead. Leading up to him even getting to do the test, we were fortunate. You familiar with Dismore? Mm-hmm. The Dismore family? I grew up with them too. Absolutely. The Dismore. They did some checking around. Dismore was running Indy cars at the time. Dismore's family was one of the best in the country in, in go-kart racing. And Dismore had watched, had customers and all that competed against him in road racing. We went to Indianapolis Raceway Park and Atlanta. We raced a handful of places, as you tell them, on the WK World Karting Association. Dominated. And the shifters... And Dismore had even commented to me at the time he hadn't seen anyone with such shifter and and clutch coordination and all, like getting off the line. We used to run lay-down go-karts. Most individuals struggled just to get them going. He had enough hand coordination and all. He could actually lift the tires off the ground, leave it with the 125s, which... Tony Murphy, you familiar with him? Tony Murphy was a motorcycle racer. So we were fortunate in road racing that we got to know Tony Murphy. Tony Murphy just gave him a little basic instruction. The clutch is up here behind the steering wheel. Yep. But the car is really long, about from the door to here. Sure, sure. And you lay down and everything. Only thing that's up is your head. And so, uh, I don't know, I figured out the way that worked for me. I'd sit up in the damn thing take the weight off the rear wheels yeah yeah and feather the thing and we did a lot of the winning from the start <laughs> a lot of it, it didn't really matter where we started willow springs when we used to run big willow springs mm. it wasn't uncommon to have as much as 20 second lead on the first lap yeah that's ridiculous i know right all attributed to the starts because those if you ever watch enduro racing mm-hmm. you know how slow a lot of them lead so if you had the advantage to to really leave, you could make up a lot of time just to get to the top of the hill. They'd be we jacking the thing up. Ours would be spinning the tires and it'd be sideways. <laughs> and, and I'm just like going, yeah. I love it. So that is the thing that I've been wanting to learn about the most, George, which is this karting prodigy one year, IndyCar driver the next. That's a story that it, it, you don't hear it. Yeah. it it's insane. Yeah. It was crazy back then, just conceptually, right. knowing all the years that folks traditionally spend working up a, a defined ladder to get to Indianapolis or, or otherwise. So that's one aspect that I've always been fascinated to learn about. The second part is oval racing, big oval racing. Mm-hmm. This wasn't the thing that you were spending every day of the week doing coming up so you've got two it's not just a leap from carts to indycar it's also becoming 
an oval driver as well and having to learn this discipline too on the surface I don't care how good you are that's almost a recipe to be dead last everywhere your first year right, right? you're learning no expectations then we had a third level which is a new team <laughs> so it's one thing if you did if you were there to get that call from Michael and right. to make that happen. You're stepping into a top flight organization, then you can have expectations for right. yourself. If someone was trying to come up with a way to make things as hard as humanly possible, <laughs> that's what your 2002 IRL debut sounded like. Yes, correct. I was worried, sleepless nights a little bit. Yeah. Uh, concerned with what I would say in front of the camera, what's right, what's wrong, what's politically correct. But it's not. Uh, I knew I was going to be asked tough questions. I had a publicist. She just said, they're going to grill you. They want the big story. They want to kind of set you up. Be very, very careful. Always carry a bottle of water, which is the reason why I always had water with me. And she says, it's, I can't remember what she told me it was called. Someone asked a question. You take a second, take a sip of water, make it look very natural, and then formulate your response. And uh, I just kind of took that and kind of ran with it because again I was a rookie I didn't know anything I just knew I wanted to drive the driving never was the hardest was the hardest was the money all the time and the equipment um, but I tell you what you go down to turn one down there in Indianapolis it pucker your ass a little bit <laughs> but uh, uh, either you make it or you don't I just figured um, you know I, I was willing to die trying got all the way here I'm not gonna just mess around with this I, I need to try to make the race and then again adding to what you said we had a lot of other issues also we were down on power I didn't have all of the bells and whistles everybody had and um, didn't have new equipment and um, and a rookie and you run the G-Force yeah the G-Force yeah uh, hand me down AJ Ford G Force. That particular year, I don't think they have but about three G Forces in the whole race. Yeah. So, so clearly those cars were total handicaps. But that's all really the team could afford. On the team side is something that fascinates me too. 310, for those who were around back then, really gained i think what national awareness through you know some MV, mtv stuff and one it was right. as a brand and product right. in this auto customization craze that hit uh it was definitely a well-known name wasn't a racing outfit though no tell us about how you came to mark laidler was it right. i believe another interesting story marshall i i've never met the man another interesting story i've read some interesting things about him right curious if you can just share some insights about how you were contacted became involved with the team what you found there what was that because it was a very unique operation um i have to digress just a bit during the go-kart stuff when i was really on top these guys came out to the track with a ton of money to throw around and I was the only minority there other than them well little did I know one of those guys was Mark Laidler and his partner Glenn 
came to me and then they were paying me to help them tune their stuff, tune the engines, chassis, teach them how to drive the things. And they were around for a while and then I think lost interest and fell off the face of the earth. Then I go ahead and I go to the Europe stuff back and forth. I continue doing what I'm doing, come back. Turns out Mark and I didn't even realize I had known them from when I was a kid. Mm. So that's what's interesting about it. Our paths crossed again. We hadn't spoken since then. Years pass. I hook up with them. They invite me to come see their location over in West L.A. by the airport. Very nice setup. All the basketball players are coming through there. I mean, dropping big money on these uh, Bentleys and Ferraris and all that. And who actually recognized me after all these years had passed was his partner, Glenn. Called him. I'm standing next to Mark. Glenn called called him, and Mark answers, and he goes, Hey, what's up, Glenn? And Glenn says, You know what? You know our driver, George? He goes, Yeah, yeah. He said, You know, we know that kid. Mark turns and looks at me. What are you talking about? I don't know this kid. Yeah. You don't remember that little skinny kid out in Riverside that taught us how to drive those go-karts back in the day? Yeah. That's him. Yeah. Wow. Mark looked at me, dropped the phone, he grabbed me, he goes, Holy shit, that is you. He said, Mark says, George, do you remember? And then we started talking, put it all back together again. He goes, Holy moly, didn't realize it was you again. Wow. And so it kind of made it kind of a warm kind of a conversation after we had realized they already knew my my pedigree, where I came from. They'd already done a little research. But they had actually come in contact with me for an extended period of time back then. Wow. They were paying me back then to teach them about the go-kart stuff. After that, things went uh, pretty smooth. He looked at me, and we had no contractual agreement at the time. He says, we're going to do this. I said, yeah. He looked me right in my face. He goes, oh, yeah. Anyway. But now, absolutely. So I said, well, you know, I'd like to get my dad to come down. Uh, meet you, look around a little bit. Of course. Sometimes he can see some things I don't see. And he goes, perfect. Bring my dad. They meet. Put the whole deal together. And that's how it happened. He was a man of his word. Because, again, we didn't have paperwork yet. Um, now, his heart was in the right place. Um, we tore up a bunch of cars. Tore up some things. Blew some motors up. It was. It got pretty expensive real quick. You and your family, it's a racing family. You know racers. You can see and feel when you're talking to a racer. You would know what their desire is. You can also see folks who maybe kind of dance in for a little bit, jump back out. Maybe they're there for publicity, marketing. What did you see with this initiative that they were proposing to you? Was it, we're racers and want to beat the world? Was it, hey, this could help elevate our brand? And we're just really looking at this as a promotional exercise. What feel did you get? Because that would certainly flavor what the experience might be for you as a racer on track. It was definitely the latter of the two. Uh, again, his heart was in the right place. And he was kind of teetering between the two. He didn't understand racing at all. Mm. I mean, he knew the basics about sure, sure, cars sure. because they had many years of uh, doing the high-end car deal, customization and things like that. So he did know a lot about cars, and he was a car guy, obviously. The racing aspect, he kind of learned as he went, and then he kind of got more involved. He'd call me late nights. Hey, you know, the way that thing was running earlier, you know, things like that. 
I might be in my hotel room and we would talk, we would text and uh, get together, sit down, have dinner, debrief a little bit. He didn't really get in the in the mix uh, too much with the with the crew uh, because you know I had the the uh, crew chief, then I had the technical guy that did all the telemetry and all that, then I had my crew chief. So the three of us would often have lengthy conversations. But Mark, he just got more involved. I believe it started as marketing, a way to advertise his brand, move it to the next next level, yeah. uh, per se. And then he kind of got more involved and realized he kind of kind of dug it. He liked it. So um, I believe it switched along the way. We're going to get in. We'll get into the racing and the races and the, those that you competed with in your season in a moment. What did you have in terms of, of crew around you? And this is my own ignorance. I don't remember who your engineer was or crew chief and such, but who are some of the folks that were put around you for that rookie season? Uh, Ted Bidding. Okay, yep. Uh, did he you, pass? He just passed. Him. Not that long ago, I think so. Yeah. He was, I remember him with Treadway for, for right. a good long while. Uh, we kind of were hooked up with Treadway. I still talk to the Treadways. I talked to Rick, I don't know. Six months ago, mm. probably, and saw him at Indy last year. Took some pictures together, hung out during the race and all that. Um, but Ted Bidding, uh, Jamie Nanny, okay. he's a crew chief. Where is he now? Do you know? I don't recall. It's been probably three, four, five years since I recall seeing him on pit lane. Great and guy. And I might even be off. We kind of we hooked up, and uh, I just liked him. I liked him. Spent the night at his house, you know, when we were in India at the track, I mean, at the shop sometimes. Met his wife. I think she was pregnant at the time, or I just had had the baby at the time. Uh, same with, uh, you know, with uh, with Ted. Uh, my engineer was, um, I cannot think of his name right now. I can see his face, but I cannot think of his name. It's a guy that Jamie already knew. Okay. Interviewed with the guy, uh, along with a couple of others, and I kind of took to that guy. He goes... Shifter car guy, huh? <laughs> I go, yeah. What's it like to try those damn things? I said, it's a kick in the ass. Yeah. He goes, it looks like it. And he goes, in comparison, you're thinking, I said, the shifter car definitely acquires a little bit more attention in a lot of areas um, because you have to be able to do the same thing in one of those things on a dime, lap after lap, and there's a lot going on in one of those things. Um, an Indy car, for me, it was kind of slow motion until you hit something. Yeah, those walls don't—they don't get any softer, unfortunately. They can soft walls all they want, but I—I <laughs> I, I made contact with a few of them, and they hurt. So let's talk about getting into your season and your debut. I think Homestead, uh, if right. I remember, that was a season opener. I believe you—you you ended up placing fairly well for your debut. Tell us about the experience of sitting in, say, your first drivers meeting and that kind of thing because what Fear. You, I mean there were some pretty significant names in there that whether you're just a fan of racing or a racer you go oh oh hey, that's hey you. that guy hey that's you hey I know you're dead I mean so uh, the, uh actually they all were fine they all were fine they were however a little nervous at first a couple told me Robbie Gordon told me he was pitted next to me at one point at one race and he says you know kid uh, bottom line is, is you know we know you're here. We know you're here, but you know we kind of all knew e- knew each other longer. Yeah. Running at 200 plus next to another guy, you know we're not we're not sure yet. 
Nothing. And fair point. Nothing against you, he said. But uh, that's we had to kind of feel each other out also. Sure. Um, Unser Jr. came over to the pit, and he we had crashed one car, and then they put another one together overnight. And I was in the hospital because I'd hit my head, so I wasn't going to be able to drive the car, is what the doctor said. Long story short, my chiropractor here read in the Orange County Register that I was in the hospital with vertigo, so I wasn't going to be able to even practice, drive the car. So they were getting a set up for somebody else. I said, no, 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 no. But Al Unser said to me before I had crashed, he said, don't worry about it, kid. He goes, I didn't make my first time either. Wow. I guess they're trying to be nice, but trying to get me prepared. And it was sort of the same thing I guess he encountered when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be damned if I'm not going to die trying to do this. Um, because at the time, I mean, we're only going like 220. I mean, only, but, you know, that's hauling ass, but 220 just wasn't... No, it was le- 215. And then finally we got the thing to do 220 or 221 at the end of the day or something like that. And that was decent. But we ended up picking up more speed than that after we fine-tuned it and got it in. But um, a few of those guys, they just came over, introduced themselves... And um, I think tried to emotionally and mentally get me prepared for a subsequent failure. Um, mm. But, you know, at one point what he told me was uh, something I still remember. He says, you know what? If the bottom falls out of this today, you're still my hero. You made it here. Wow. And that speaks to I, what I'm guessing was a race-by-race, new dawn, new day type scenario for you. Because as you're going to Kentucky and Nazareth... I've been on these tracks before. You're having to show up, continue to learn in a new type of car, in what is a new style of racing, and figure out the aha here at you know again this track it might have there might be whether it seems or there might be new patches of pavement there's grip here not there one lane no lane you name it right all while doing 200 plus at most at many of the places and with folks who've been doing this for a long time and are automatically in a groove they already know right we see it again it's a usual thing every year but not with as much of a road to have to try and travel to get to a place of comfort what is that like for you mentally George as you're going to each of these races going alright I want to be there and beat everybody but I can't exactly go out and look like Bambi on the ice trying to find right. my feet and that's kind of where I was in, on some of the tracks um, luckily you know Jamie had been around Ted had been around the engineer had been around so that helped a ton as far as the car the initial car setup. They did have the thing back down, uh, had it winged up pretty good. Uh, and then as it got more familiar, which wasn't a whole lot of time at each track, because we, we weren't able to go to the tracks and practice before. Sure. Um, so they kind of had an idea, the engineer had an idea of the chassis set up and this kind of thing. And they would just talk to me a bunch um, in between me singing oldies on the radio. Really? Yeah, that was kind of interesting. They played some of it like on television. <laughs> I think it was at the 500, I think. I'd be singing Etta James. I'd go down straight away and sing Etta James or like a verse or something like that. And then I could just hear these guys cracking up sometimes. I was having a great time. Great time. Best time of my life. 
But that speaks to mindset, though, doesn't it, Mr. Mack? That despite all, again, all of this, holy crap, how are you jumping from what is perceived as the absolute basement bottom starting point right. to the mountaintop, yet instead of being out there, I'd be crying the whole time. I'd be peeing my pants the whole time. It yeah, sounded it like mindset-wise, your son was was in as good a place and the right place uh, as he could be. Well, clearly that was a fundamental attitude, you know, and I tried to pass on to him because I, I come from a background of getting here, 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 and there, regardless of what was around. And he, he just had that attitude. I can do it. And I had the thing that, like when we was crashing all those go-karts, they said, why don't you tell him to slow down? No. It's a lot of work for you to drain the cart back. That's okay. <laughs> you know. But he got off to a good start. I don't know if you happen to be at Phoenix for his second race. His second race, the pace, if you remember, George, that top five pace, top yeah. five pace. Potentially he had a car that was easily going to finish in the top five. Top five Running pace. Good. Top five pace, and I don't want to get real aggressive, but really Carl was like top three pace. He was just downright fast at Phoenix. And unfortunately, in traffic, car spun out front, totally not his fault. Car spun out front when he was out there just pacing, practice and wrecked the car. And uh, that took care of that. That was a setback. So we weren't expecting that because they're kind of going, you're not running too bad, kid. Yeah. Keep you know doing what you're doing. We had early on <laughs> one. <laughs> you know how and that how was the one we crashed. When they wrecked the car, how do they do it? Roll another one out the yeah. trailer, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's the only one we had. So you're also in a situation, George, where I think the 310 folks gung-ho enthusiastic to do this even though you've got Spreewell and all kinds of folks coming in right. spending money investing doing whatever it is they're hoping to clear I don't know what they're hoping to make on an annual basis hmm. but whatever that number was you throw in funding in any car operation the number gets small yes scary scary right and if you've got a, someone who as a rookie you're going to put the car on the wall multiple times. And, and again, that's not making excuses. That's just reality. It's part of the process. Then that number gets even smaller. You find out a new team owner's commitment very quickly when things don't go the way <laughs> the roses and unicorns and candy that they were hoping for is right. Is that becoming a point of pressure for you early in your rookie season? From Mark and company going, oh, Mark never uh, came down to me okay. about any of that. What ended up happening, uh, can't remember who it was. Anyway, crashed in front of me. And I back up. When I back up, I get collected from the rear by uh, Robbie McGee. That's how I became friends with Robbie. Robbie's I hadn't, one of the good ones. I hadn't met him yet. So he apologized, very apologetic. So all three of us get collected. And then after that, that's when I met him, met his family, met his mom, 
Norma. He's still married to Norma. I think they got twins now. But anyway, I still talk to him every once in a while. But um, Mark never really... Um, I had overhear conversations a little bit, but I think they tried to keep it away from me just a bit because they didn't want me to worry, I believe. Good. But I would, you know, you catch a little different attitude here or there, and obviously I uh, wasn't com- completely naive. I was naive, but not completely. When I see them take me back to the room and they're turning lights on to stay up all night to try to put this stuff back together for the next race or, you know, things like that, I kind of figured, I kind of knew what was going on, and so they just kept patching up the same car. Um, but at that point, after that crash in that race, uh, Tony George came to me. can't remember where we were. He said he wanted to talk to me. I'm thinking, oh, what did I do? Mm. I'm a rookie. Don't tell me I screwed my Oh, head. no. He came over and pulled me aside. He goes, look, kid, we dig you. You know, we dig you. The fun stuff on the radio... You got personality. The guys seem to like you so far. We know you're underfunded. So I'm going to do something for you because you cannot tell anyone. Sure, absolutely. I thought he was going to get me some driver coaching. It's the first thing that popped into my head, I remember. No, no. He gave me a check. Wow. And uh, when he brought the check, again, I can't remember what track we were at. I'm looking at this. What's this, I asked him. And he says, well, you know, I gave this a lot of thought. It'd be worse for me and for the league if you're gone. He said, this is cost of doing business. Uh, look, six-digit check, that's a huge cost. He goes, that's not, I didn't even begin to cover it, but yeah. we know this will help. We know you got the one car. Gave him a hug, man, and utmost respect at that point they built the second car patched together the first one so that's why the second one was gray with the Mattel stuff on it but um, that helped a bunch I love that story because it ties it ties Tony and his mother together in a way that I wasn't aware of Mary Holman George recently lost unfortunately right I read that she not only was the first person to to greet Willie T when he pulled into the pits after his fourth and final lap to qualify for the 500 she was there behind the scenes not just supporting which is huge but helping mm. applying pressure and influence because Willie already being very well known and also not being very well liked by many mm. who happen to look like me, <laughs> she didn't play that. Mm. She had no time for any of that. And so if you want to talk about the ultimate cosine right. state of Indiana birthplace of an organization that uses three letters in a row from the alphabet mm-hmm. you want to have the woman who owns the building everyone's standing in and is in charge is right. the first one 
to give him a giant hug and was probably happy. Even Willie told me, he's like, I think she might have been happier than I was at the moment. <laughs> I love to hear that Tony, having an opportunity uh, to make the same recognition that, exactly. hey, kid, you're new to this, but we like what we're seeing and you are important to us. Right. Here you go. That's that's maybe a story about Tony, who has certainly helped author a lot of stories that aren't super flattering about himself. I think that's an important one for folks to hear. It is. A lot of people don't know that. I never spoke about it, actually, um, until right now. Uh, team knew. Mark knew where it came from. Tony knew and I knew. That's it. Uh, but, I guess, in that same vein, you know, you know, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. And obviously his uh, presentation of it was a little bit different. But if someone is simply quiet or if they're rough, a rough kind of a guy, and they come over and they hand a race driver, race car driver a check, you don't have to say much. But what he did say was, you know, this would be the best thing for all of us. This is an interesting setup. It had some spice. I think he used the word swag. Actually, adds a little swagger. Wow. It says. And um, hands it to me, shook my hand, gave me a hug, and turned around and walked away. And I'm kind of teary-eyed. I'm just kind of like, holy shit. Did this even just happen to me right now? And so after that, you know, we'd talk. I'd call him. Brian Barnhart was very instrumental. He'd, he'd be in my ear a lot listen kid you're here for a reason he would tell me just go out there and do what the hell you came here to do don't worry about that's what he would tell me so when I pull up to go qualify at any race he'd be standing there and he'd get in my helmet and these are the things he would say and he was like nobody cares about anything else when your helmet's closed don't let any of that other BS racism I assume he meant don't let any of that other BS even enter your thoughts you're here, you're a driver. When you got the visor closed, nobody knows Nobody knows what color you are. They might be rooting for the number 31. They might be rooting for your story. They might be rooting for the underdog. Whatever it is, do your thing. You would always say something positive. Always, every time. You seem like someone, George, who's maybe built to handle pressure, digest it, deflect it. I don't know how. We all have our different methods. Mm-hmm but seems like pressure and expectation is something where whatever might have been applied to you or put upon you seemed like that would not be something that you let get inside and have negative effects. Is that true or not? It does. It does. However, as long as you, uh, you take and use it properly, it adds fuel to your own fire keeps you sharp, keeps you more focused. The moment you're relaxed is the moment that, you know, if you're content, you know, um, that's when it'll affect you more in a more negative way. Now, well, this is a podcast. We can say whatever here. Say whatever you want. Uh, obviously, you know, growing up a minority, uh, you know, your life is different. It's entirely different. I just wish, you know, not just us, but just in general, our society would have more conversations about these things. There's a lot of similarities, obviously. You're talking about pigment and less pigment. So what? There's good people and bad people everywhere. 
no matter where they came from or what color they are. However, but being a minority, there's a stigma. And basically with that stigma, we grow up under pressure. You should grow up under pressure when it's necessary. You know, you're pretty familiar with it. So it might not take you off your game as much as somebody that grew up without that same pressure. What I... What could be fascinating about that for those who aren't aware hmm. is that if everything that I mentioned at the outset when we started speaking about your graduation in IndyCar, those are multiple time bombs right. that could, if not would probably derail or massively unsettle the average race car driver right. who's not accustomed to having that much intense pressure right. stepping into a situation like that. Every young driver, every rookie wants to do well, doesn't want to embarrass them, themselves, wants to further their career, right. all kinds of objectives, but those are kind of singular, right. right? Me, I'm an athlete, I'm just me, me, me. Right. You're stepping into something where you knew, boy, this is, there are so many easy opportunities for me to fail here. Right. Then instead of letting those things just send you down those paths, mm. the fact that, sure, crashes, learning, expected stuff, your one season was anything but a disaster. I mean, that's, that's phenomenal. I hope you realize that, George. Not quite that yet. It, I was happy they made the 500. And then after he told, well, I told you what he said to me, you know, that made a big difference. Because uh, I knew what, you know, my parents had sacrificed along the way, you know, for, for the opportunity in the end. Um, I think you guys even took a loan out of your house at one point, didn't you? Got a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> so, cost a lot of money. What folks don't understand to get in a position to do something like that, you got to spend a lot of money. Yeah. Cost a lot of money. It's just that simple. That early retirement plan that might might have got pushed back a few years, Mr. Mack. But see, also, you know, most people probably don't know he's a motorhead. Still is a motorhead. So it's like anything in this life. Um, the benefit that you receive from whatever it is you spend that monetary, that fiat note on. Because it is fake, it's just a dollar bill. But whatever it is you spend that on, if we really want something, in our mind, the benefit is gonna far surpass whatever amount of money is that you're gonna be charged for it. So for him, he, along the way, I believe he, I believe he enjoyed it more than I did, or as, amount, as, as the same amount, or I think more. Um, I enjoyed it, don't get me wrong. This is what we did since I was a kid. But along the way, oh, he'd get a hard-on from that shit. I mean, he'd be all into it. And so, you know, that, that, that's fuel also. If you got somebody on the side that's kind of like, uh, kind of down, low-energy guy, that kind of thing, and not really supportive in that way, you know, that, that drags you down also. Let's speak about Indy. Hmm. Indy 500, obviously, if we're talking American traditions, I mean, there, there are few that are greater. Everyone speaks about, knows about the 300 plus thousand people there. Right. In terms of just a spectacle, a sporting event, as a fan, you can buy a ticket and sit in a seat and still be able to look around and go, holy crap. It's this intimidating. Is amazing. Yeah. 
So going from the local Adams Garden track, right. parking lot of the Queen Mary, right. grandstand's a little bigger here. Just a little. Tell us about your first laps of this mythic place, mm. place that has taken and claimed many lives. This seems to me just as an American kid who grew up in a racing family would have been, there would have been an amazing moment of recognition, I hope at some point, for you to be able to either stand back and look or turning a warm-up lap to realize if we're talking about making it, this is the place we've been trying to get to. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know if you've seen some older footage. But in the beginning, uh, whenever I'd walk out into the pit, I was scared, so I had my helmet on. Mm. Or my hat was really low, because I was trying not to look to the left or to the right. I was fearful. Um, And then there was always flanking somebody to the left, and somebody flanked me to the right. I was in the middle. And it was because uh, I was scared, anxious, the whole gambit of emotions. Excited, scared, felt like I was going to burst into tears, uh, nervous, uh, everything, all at once. But it's sort of exhilarating. And I'm usually very nervous until they strap me in the car and the thing starts. Then it kind of kind of goes away. But um, I just kept my head down and looked straight ahead. Of course, human curiosity, it kind of forced me to move my eyes a little bit like that yeah. while I was walking. But I never looked at, just looked around and took it all in until I got in the car the first time, uh, to your question. And um, they were just in my ear, but this is a big, big place, kid. This thing is going to haul ass. And I said, well, what do you consider hauling ass? Over 200, Jamie said. Didn't seem that fast. And then they, he goes, you're insane. He said, but we got the thing backed off a little bit. Lots of wing in the rear. Lots of wing dialed in in the front. Bring it up to speed slowly. You're going to warm the tires up. And he said, um, you know, 200 miles an hour and above, you want to get there as fast as possible while being careful. I said, how's that even possible? He goes, you got to figure that out. Yeah. And he said, after 200, Jamie told me, he said, the thing will settle down a bunch. Then it's going to feel a lot more comfortable. But up to 200, your asshole's going to pucker. So then that added more pressure. And, of course, I didn't want to back the thing in the wall right away. So I just did what they told me. Kind of kind of got comfortable with the thing. Realized turn one was different than the other three. Turn two was different than the other two. I mean, so each one was different. Sure. And, uh after I sort of got that figured out and then they kind of started taking wing out of the thing you know my comfortability level increased a bunch and um, initially I think it might have been 212 or 215 and then 220, 221 at some point and that was it that was it I was flat out that was it so they had to do some more dialing in on it and along with all that working closely with them and the more laps I got I felt more comfortable it was still daunting still daunting but then in my head, what happens is, is um, the faster I'm going, everything else is a blur. Mm. You can't really see, mm. or I couldn't really see. It was kind of gray, and it was sort of like a tunnel. 
So if you've ever seen anything on television, a movie about somebody driving really fast, that's exactly what it's what it looks like in my head. Everything's kind of whizzing by. You can't really see anything unless it's another car next to you or in front of you. But uh, it's just a tunnel and it's kind of gray. Dark gray. Um, and that's all I see. So I never really got a chance to really look at the people until I printed out pictures from one of our cameras back then. Yeah. Like, holy shit, look at all the people. And they were the panoramic pictures. I still have them. They were the long ones. And it was from the time somebody was taking them from the time they strapped me in the car, started it, and I took my initial laps. So all the way around, I can see in these pictures all these people. And I'm just shitting my pants. I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh... But you know what, Keith Anklin spoke about Indy. You know you had to go through the rookie test. Hmm. So he's talking about once he got with the race, he went to Indy, and, and you can imagine from the time from Homestead to Indy, not very far. He didn't have very many laps when he went to Indy, and hmm. he breezed through the rookie test. Breezed through that rookie test that you have to go through. So... All of that move, you know, move right along. After that, they were, John Lewis was there at the time, blonde guy, mm-hmm. Brian Barnard, Tony, they were like, oh, this is going to be interesting. And Tony said to me, he says, you know, you surpassed my expectations. We didn't, we thought you were going to wad the thing up. So we're all kind of watching, want to make sure you don't get hurt, obviously, too. But you guys are a new team, you're a new driver. And he goes, this is going to make the other guys driving around you feel a lot better. And it sort of did. I don't know if he had conversations with them. I'm not sure. But after that, it was a lot more comfortable. You finished 17th in your first Indy 500 in a field of 33. Hmm. Did that resonate with you at all? No. I mean, you seem like someone who's wired for the, the Ricky Bobby. If you ain't first, you're, you know, mm. if it isn't a win, I don't really care. I was not happy with that at all. Really? No. Oh, you have to tell him the key. You know where Barron finished, right? Alex Barron. He finished like fifth or sixth, right? Something like that. And Alex finished somewhere around sixth. Last pit stop. And he might have lost track of it, but I kept track of it. I remember. I was running Alex, with Alex. Alex and him were running together when we made the last round of pit stops. It had to be somewhere around sixth. Ended up when he went back out on the pit stop, ended up with a vibration. You familiar with Indy? If you make a pit stop and have a vibration, what must you do? We, he made an unscheduled pit stop and come back for that 17. That was scary. I had no idea what had happened. So with that kind of speed, you can imagine, I'm concerned. So we had to pit again. Extra pit stop wasn't for that. He was he was looking at a top five, top six finish. We were oh, running. You got to go back if you can look at the lap yeah. running order. So so. Well, at I one point, picture. at one point, me and Alex, I was running with him. He was a little faster, so I was drafting with him, and we were we were like twelfth, something like that, I believe. They radioed in and told me. They're like, kid, you're running like, you're like 12th right now. Keep doing what the hell you're doing. And I said, yeah, but this thing is all over the place in the draft. And so then what I started doing was I'd kind of flank him a little bit uh, so I can get some air on the front wing. Okay. 
uh, to keep the left side down a little bit, like for the for turn one. But down the back straightaway, we didn't have it set up to the point to where it felt comfortable in the draft. It was um, the lots of turbulence, banging banging me around a little bit. And at that point, that's when I had the vertigo. Mm. So if you go back and look at some of that footage, you'll notice my head is tilted and strapped in with a bunch of padding on this side to keep my head turned like this. That's the only way I could see straight. Because I wasn't going to let anybody else drive the car. So when my chiropractor read the paper and said I wasn't going to drive the car at Indy, he called me. He says, they're giving you some pills called something or other. And so I think my mom was there, and I go, or somebody was there, but I go, yeah. He goes, don't take those pills. My chiropractor, don't take those pills. Don't take those fucking pills. I already took one. Don't take any more. Throw them in the trash. Find a chiropractor from one of those guys you know out there and get adjusted every day. Several times a day. I said, what? He said, no bullshit. If you can get adjusted five times in a day, do it. Because I still had a few days left. Hmm. Got with a couple of the guys, find a chiropractor. I was able to get adjusted once or twice a day for the next few days. That's how I was able to drive the car. I wasn't completely cured because what had happened was when I hit my head before, I backed into turn two. And so telemetry said we were doing, I don't know, 223 or something coming out of the thing lost the rear and banged my head so I just saw stars my ears are ringing right now still they still ring Jeez. but um, they let me out of the hospital I told them I was going to take the pills I didn't take any more uh, based on what my chiropractor told me and um, sat down with Jamie and they were going to let Roberto Guerrero drive the car they're starting to fit it for him because he's a smaller guy I said uh, no 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 my deal I'm driving it yeah, but you can't even barely... I'm driving it. Took him back out of the scenario, refitted it to me again, and if we should look at some of the pictures, that's why my head is like this. So I ran the Indy 500 with my head cocked like this with a bunch of padding over here, short strap here to the car, long, extended, specially made strap that Jamie made over here, and they had me tight like that. And they were asking me along the way, how's the vertigo doing? You know, How's your head doing? I'm okay, but I wasn't going to tell them the absolute truth. That's insane. Yeah. So but it also speaks to the determination. Look, I got here. I got here. I got to drive the car. You're not, you're not making me sit and watch this I from the sidelines. I got to drive the car. I'm going to tell you. I was not going to let anybody else drive it. Andy was another example and, and really don't like to talk too loud. But we had more obstacles thrown at him. Had more obstacles thrown at him. And when we were off the pace to make the race, I have a mechanical background, built high performance race engines and all. And I understand steering track and all of that. He's driving a perfect line, but we slow. So, so at the time, it was unequivocally like a horsepower. I tried not to say much, because you know, when he was on the team, you know, most of the time I didn't say much, I just sit back. But Ted and all them down there would ask me something, because I did have a racing and a chassis background. Okay, so the engine he had in his car looked like me. The engine that everyone else had in their car looked like you. When I when I talk in terms of the exhaust system and the intake system, now you now you understand. 
all the ones that was going by that shaking the wall, the ones that was running the speed that you need to run, they look like you. His look like me. So I, I, I asked the question, why do he have one that looks like me and everyone else have one that looks like you? <laughs> and I said, oh, it don't make a difference. Well, that was an insult. And I had to in, 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 insert this one here because it, it have stuck with me over the years. I, I finally, uh, Chip Ganassi was a great person. Tony George got in the middle of it, right? Right. Tony George went to Chip because Roger Ward was about the same size. To that Roger. Jeff Ward. Jeff drive, Ward. Jeff Ward. I mean, Jeff Ward. Right. Right. Jeff Ward. To drive the car. How fast do you think it went when they put him in the car? Steering trace, mile power, the same. Slow. Huh? So I think they figured they were going to put him in and he'd probably go a bunch faster than me, maybe. I don't know. Went the same. And, and I was amazed that certain folks got certain folks to make this happen. You know, I, I think Chip, and I don't even know if he even halfway was probably remember today act like it was no big thing they no just, great guy too but but when it was all over and done I did pull the 310 bunch aside plus some of them high profile actors and things that was there I said we take the bottom line I said I, you notice I haven't said much and and, and didn't want to say too much because you if you were still in the game you'd probably be blackballed I said unequivocally First off, then you don't even look the same. Listen at it, don't even sound the same. Don't have that. There's no horsepower here. So I said, when it's all over and done, and I probably shouldn't say this, <laughs> <laughs> we ain't gonna get into the great detail. But you do know we ended up getting another engine put in the car. And, and that car went fast enough with the same driver, same car, it went fast enough that if we could have qualified on time, I think we was qualified right. mid-pack. What happened was I was only doing the 221 or 222 yeah. I mentioned earlier. But, and then we missed quali the first round of qualifying, so I ended up qualifying on the last day. So I bumped Herbert. He still mentions it. He mentioned it to me last year at the 500. Oh. Yeah. He mentioned it to me last year. He goes, he introduced me to somebody. This is the motherfucker that bumped me. <laughs> You remember that kid? I go, yeah. He goes, God damn it, I can't, still can't swallow that. But uh, that was the difference between the 221 or 222 to 227. Yeah. 227 with an engine change. So the 227, if I had qualified on time, obviously would have been a lot better than the last Rose Society. Sure. I still have the T-shirts I wear at home. Oh, that's way. great. So it was Greg Ray, myself, and Dismore. They, they ended up figuring out it was down about 30 horsepower. That was when the Infinities came around. Yeah. So Sarah Fisher had an Infinity. I remember trying to draft that Infinity at Indy. I hit the radio right away. I said, I'm, I'm pinned right now. I, I can't even draft this thing. Wow. I could see her walking away from me in the straightaway. Frustrating. I'm trying to push the pedals it's to the floor. 
come back in, I'm kind of pissed off, a little frustrated. There's a couple pictures I have of that, too. I think many people have probably seen them. I had the helmet off. I was going like this. And I was just pissed. That was after that encounter on the track with the Infinities. And then even some of the other, you know, Chevys, they had more ponies than I did. Not as bad as the Infinity, but they'd still kind of, you know, walk over for me a little bit. Yeah. And the thing is, is this is the reason why, what he, going to what he said earlier at Phoenix, for starters, at the small tracks, I was okay. That's where it took driving. It wasn't all horsepower. So, uh, Phoenix, and what's the other small track? Oh, Pennsylvania, uh, Lehigh, Pennsylvania. Um, Nazareth. Nazareth. We're running good there also. I think I was seventh there. I was running with Lil Al at that time. I couldn't quite get past him. I was faster. But I couldn't get past him. I, I could put my nose in maybe halfway. Just didn't want to collect us both. And he said something to me about that, too. He goes, you were faster. I just couldn't let you get. I just couldn't. Hmm. I left it open. But he said, if you had gotten all the way up here, you know, I, I got no choice. You took the line away. And I said, yeah. And then I didn't want to collect us both. And he just goes, he, he just looked at me. He goes like this. Tapped his head. Smart. But um, the 227, I was happier with that. I just remember thinking I wish I could have qualified sooner because I was right in the thick of the lap speeds as a lot of the other guys. Some of the top guys went 228. But 227, I had never gone that fast. But going into turn three, you see like 235. 238 or something like sure. that. Sure. Like, holy shit. Well, you had, to, you had to run a minimum of 230 right in the middle of that corner. If not, you'd have supported that, that run. That was the gimme. Pulls it down just a bit. And, you know, we're operating on 125,000 of steering input. Yeah. Eighth inch, basically. And they get on the radio and tell me right away, you got an understeer, kid? They go, yeah, yeah, I can adjust the brake bias. Changes the balance just a bit, what I can do on the track. And then with the G-Force, I also had a weight jacker in there. Um, I didn't care for it a whole lot, but I had to use it on the smaller tracks to kind of get the thing to act right sometimes. But um, I was happy with the speed in Indy. Going back, to, I was happy with that. Just wasn't happy when it happened. I wanted it to be a fair, you know, heads up kind of a thing. Just to kind of see where I, where I measured up. You know, with the best guys in the world. Because they say only like 3% of the world's drivers make it there. And so I just felt really, I was happy with that, knowing that a lot of people make it. Let's talk a little bit, George, about legacy. Hmm. So with Willie T's, when he was able to qualify, he had that disastrous attempt in 85 with the team that was not interested in him being there. Hmm. But when he qualified, uh, made the show in 91, one of his heroes and just true pioneers, Joey Ray, was there. And Willie remembers, or Willie says how Joey was just not wanting to be in, really in the frame at all, was mm. almost, not embarrassed, but just uh, wanted Behind to watch scenes. from without being too close. And Will, Willie was like, no, 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 mm. you are... You are the man on top of his father, Bunny, obviously. But, you know, you were the person who helped pave this road. And I've been able to add a few feet to that right. that runway. What was it like for you 
knowing that obviously that road had been paved, but that project had stopped. Another was, funny thing, Marshall, about Willie, before I even got to IndyCars, he saw me on a race on ESPN. Called around, got our home phone number. I might have been out of the country at the time, or I don't know. Called our house. They go, hey, telephone call for you. When I pick up the phone, it's Willie. And he's in full, he's at 200 mile an hour verbally on the phone by the time I answer it. Yeah. God damn it, son of a bitch, I can't believe there's another fucking black driver out here. Where in the fuck have you been, kid? Holy shit. He's just going sideways on the phone. So we kind of struck up a conversation, you know, a, a, a kind of like a lightweight friendship. He was up in San Jose area. Yep. And uh, at that point, I know he sent us some money here and there to kind of help out. I think he was dealing with Bill Cosby at the time. Maybe, I don't remember. But um, had an opportunity to talk to him from time to time. And um, we kind of kept the friendship kind of going. Well, before I took the Indy, that second IndyCar ride, I was in conversation with Willie also. He said, I'll tell you what, that's when he was driving the truck. He says... It's time for me to hang him up, kid. I want you to drive this truck. I said, NASCAR? Oh. No, no, no. Come down to this last race at Fontana. Okay. I go to the track, brings me in, introduces me to the crew, and tells everybody, this is my successor right here. This is who's driving the truck after wow. me. What? <laughs> And he goes, I want you to drive the truck after me. I want them to know. He's full of personality, obviously, as you know. I like the guy. Probably, um, you know, like you said, probably rubs some people the wrong way, but I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, saying how you feel. I don't think it's a wonderful any, thing to be who you are. There's nothing wrong with that. Just because someone might be a little bit different does not give us the reason to now judge them. None of us like to be judged on any level. Why is it okay to judge this guy as a bad guy simply because he tells you what he thinks? Um, shout out to Willie, by the way. But I didn't end up taking that ride, and that's when Bill Lester took the ride. I had my heart set on open wheel, and a few people were like, how do you even drive? You can see the tires moving. How do you even... That stuff's insane. There's nothing over the top of you. You guys are insane. That's where my heart was. I had been back and forth to Europe. And another part of the twist of the story is my story and uh, and uh, the other guy. Lewis Hamilton. Our stories are very, very similar, but about 10 years apart. Mm. He was younger at the time. Our stories were very, very similar. I want to stay in Europe too expensive um, I believe if I was able to stay things would turn out different because in Europe there's no black white there's no Asian it's the American it's the Chinese it's the it's your country origin so I'm from America they just call me the American they had no idea over there that I was actually black hmm. I had some people I met the niece of one of the tracks I was testing on and she asked me she says hey this is a true story I thought she was yanking my chain she says, hey, and this is in uh, the Netherlands. She says, uh, 
I tan all the time. I use accelerator. What do you use? Just look at me square in the face, Marshall. I said, get the fuck out of here. What are you talking about? She goes, no. I use this kind of accelerator that's supposed to make me darker, and me and my cousin, we use it all the time. What do you use? I said, nothing. She goes, you're shitting me. I said, no. Just lucky, I guess. (laughs) I was the novelty. (laughs) True story. And they didn't... They go, yeah, you're from the United States, right? I go, yeah. You guys have something else there you guys use that's better than what we use? Because we'll order some. I said, no, I don't tan. I don't do anything. <sighs> True story. So even when I You get take off, your melanin supplements right? in the morning. So that's even what it is. when I would get off the planes, I, I was really weird about my helmet. So you'd probably see pictures of me carrying my helmet. I didn't like anybody to touch it. They wanted it to go with the car and all that. I said, no, no, no. It goes on the plane with me. I put it above my head or under the seat. I carry it with me. So I'd get off the plane with my helmet in my hand all the time. And then depending on the countries you go to, they couldn't even really speak, you know, a fair amount of English. They would just say, driver, driver, because they see my helmet and take pictures with strangers in the airports and stuff like that. It's just different there than it is here. So if I had stayed, I think things would have turned out a little bit different. But the way things happen is the way things happen, the way they happen. For whatever reason. Maybe I wasn't prepared for that. How do you look back, and I'm, I don't want to just limit this to one IRL season, mm-hmm. but knowing that that was the, the highest profile thing that you got to do as a professional race car driver, where does that sit with you now? Where does that live with you in terms of your life, your achievements? I mean, we're, what, 2019 now this is 2002 we're talking about so decent while in the past Mm. but compared to 99.9 percent of the human beings on the planet that's not something most folks can look back at and say oh i did that right i was a professional major league baseball player for a year again it's where does that sit with you today in terms of your life what you've achieved well as i've gotten older i've actually become a lot more wiser I was just full of piss and vinegar. I had a big set of balls. Didn't really care much about much. Uh, no, no, no real fear. Obviously, as I've gotten older, things are different. My way of thinking is different. How I approach things is different. I'm a lot more settled, which I think happens to a lot of us. Uh, just people in general. Probably mostly men. You know, just really settle yourself down a little bit. And so there, I have some regrets, things I would have done different. Um, I would have been even more um, interactive with the, with my team. I did have an idea, obviously, how to explain to them what I wanted the car to do. At that time, I didn't ha- didn't have the ability to explain to them how to m- get it there. So therein lied the sort of gap. Sure. Now, Jamie was very intuitive. He and I would hang out outside of the track. And like I said before, I'd spend the night at his house sometimes, have dinner with him and his family. You know, we'd hang out different places. Well, uh, we kind of forged a relationship because we had to work pretty tight. So he was kind of my go-between between myself trying to explain uh, how to make the car do what I wanted to do and explaining it to the engineer. So um, had I had a little bit more experience with that? Okay. Had I had more experience with that, I'm sure that would have helped in a lot of cases. 
but um, I had a three-year deal. And uh, after the first season, we had, you know, I had two more seasons I was going to, I was prepared to run. Couldn't get everything all together. Moved into a new shop and um, had um, uh, sponsorship troubles, which is always uh, on the horizon. It's always there. And um, because of the amount of money we spent the first season, my major sponsors, uh, mainly 310, um, even though we had that help, they were not really, they, their pockets weren't deep enough. Sure. They just weren't. So, um, we just kind of folded the thing up at that point, and I was heartbroken, depressed, uh, because I was still owed a bunch of money. I had a three-year deal. Mm. Three-year deal. First first year, I think I made, I don't know, 750000 which is not terrible for a rookie. I didn't have a name yet. I didn't have... There's some IndyCar stars today <clears throat> who are making that amount. Oh, stars. Well, that, was, that was a good contract, by the way. I'm just telling you now. These guys helped me with it. Yeah. Um, I didn't know what to ask for. I had no idea where to start. And then I think it might have been Ted. He said, this is typically how it works. Depending on the driver, sometimes you might get 25 30% as a rookie part of the purse. And then anything else, uh, you know, is kind of on you as far as any endorsement deals or whatever. Um, but, you know, I got like 40. Um, and my salary was... 150 or 200 something like that and then about 40% of the purse um but you know I didn't get paid all the money I was owed sure but that experience is priceless so I never sued anyone I want to be known as that guy that sues somebody out of bitterness I was grateful and humbled and happy especially after what my dad had told me that if the bottom falls out today still my hero I don't even care mm. and that's all I needed to hear that was it forget the money forget all the people forget all that he was happy so he got to enjoy what he had been working on since I was 10 that's amazing so George as long as he said that to me because he was the first person that came and grabbed me as they were trying to get me out of the car after the 500 I look up and he's standing right next to the car. Looked like somebody shoved a coat hanger in his mouth. He was smiling so big. <laughs> and so I was pretty weak after the race. It was a long, it was a four or five hour race. We had crashes and all that. So it was a long race. And once they unstrapped me, and I was pretty weak and kind of woozy a little bit still from the vertigo and uh, dehydration. But when I stood up in the seat, I remember looking down as I stood up and it was just a puddle. Well, I had to pee also, but there was, <laughs> some of it was sweat. So, um, you know, he's the first person. Grab me and kind of drug me out of the car. I couldn't lift my legs up high enough to even get out. Wow. He kind of drug me out. I'm kind of leaning on him like that. He's like, oh, my God, I can't, I can't believe what the fuck you just did. Oh, my God, I can't even believe this thing is in one fucking... And he's saying all the stuff while he's dragging me out. And then I kind of stood there and I'm kind of... 
like that and i'm just like yeah wow and i was sort of in a daze a little bit but a lot of excitement a lot of emotions i was teary-eyed he was also i signed the helmet that i finished the race in and gave it to him and so you know in his house he's got a trophy room with all of my stuff wow and uh, the room is it's probably three times his size but every space on the wall has trophies with my name on it big ones off the floor fast time awards championships um in go-karts you have these um grand national events mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. where the best come from all over well you know i've won several of those no minority had ever done that either i'm t- one of the top 50 drivers you know in shifter carts and all that so when i see some of these guys when i go out to the tracks now I just kind of uh he's not in the power range i mean i can mm. i mean we lived that stuff he and i lived it and uh there wasn't anything else that we cared about nothing i almost didn't go to my junior i'm a senior prom my mother forced me to go at the last minute uh I skipped mine for a race, uh, just as a mechanic. But yeah, I was right in the mix. I was not going to go. Who gives a shit about that? I said, "No, honey, you need to go. You're going to regret this later. You need to go." And he didn't care. So I had his head down working on something. He didn't care. He didn't want me to go. Really, I ended up going. She talked him into it. Had a great time. They spent a bunch of money on that for me too, with the limos and the overnight stay and we went to Magic Mountain and I got a rental car they got me all kinds of crazy stuff and um, it was a great time I love I love how much this journey of yours was a father and son Hmm. journey and your father still beaming with pride like it happened yesterday and he has all the stuff along the way to prove it. Pictures framed, that helmet I gave him, signed. I assume, I don't know, maybe a uh, history museum might want it one day, I don't know. But uh, a lot of good times. Best times of my life, actually. Saw a little bit after uh, pro racing mixed martial arts hmm. become a passion of yours oh man we're sitting here in your business here in long beach uh, entrepreneurial spirit obviously is at play here yes tell us about the years after your indycar season you still karting you still doing something for fun behind the wheel what tell us about the years after uh i did here and there um lost the along the way I lost a lot for karting it's changed so much and instead of like it is in Europe racing is racing if you can't make weight that's your problem going to diet here they make different rules and things like that to accommodate other people with money and things like that that uh, just not really racing um, they don't really televise things a, a ton anymore they have the Scusa series that travels around mm-hmm. that's gotten pretty big with one guy running it, but he runs it like a dictator. If he hears you say anything bad about him or the organization, he'll ban you from the trial. I mean, things like this. I mean, he's infringing on our right of free speech. Not necessarily having to be a journalist, but how do you shut down what somebody wants to say or you ban them from your events? So I mm. lost interest in, in these kinds of things. My dad's company sponsored that stuff for a long time. That was one of the big Mac Enterprises 
Mac Motorsports, uh, uh, the big flags out there, out at uh, California Speedway. I don't think he does it anymore, but it was out there. I saw it for a long time. I'd come out and watch some of the races, run across some of the guys I grew up with. Always show, you know, lots of respect, say hi, and this kind of thing. But um, I lost something when it comes to, to shifter cards mm. because of the rules and everybody whines and complains. If you, I mean, obviously these things are very pricey, but that's not really racing. Yeah. Um, as far as the mixed martial arts, I've always been training. My, my dad was in the military, and so they were into fitness to begin with. Which branch? Uh, Marine. So you know exactly what I mean. So growing up in a military household, and he's an engineer, engineers kind of have a way about them where they're, they're highly educated, but they're always trying to improve something. So that the racing and all that stuff fit in with him. But um, I had to... I had to have a workout regimen. At the time, speaking about, you know, the entrepreneur stuff also that you alluded to, um, they had a few businesses growing up. Um, they had an H&R Block and a Quizno sandwich shop and uh, LNS Apartment Rentals, a management company because they had a bunch of houses here in L.A. So... Early on, I learned, uh, and then they had Mac, uh, the Mac Motorsports also, and we had a lot of customers because I was winning stuff. Yeah. And um, I was doing a lot of the billing, selling over the phone. My parents were at work. I think I was 14. So during summers, that was my job. That's how I earned my allowance. So he paid me $200 a week allowance. Every Monday morning, it was on the check from Mac Motorsports was on the dining room table. That was my allowance. So I had a ton of money at 14, um, but I had to work for it. So I learned a lot about the entrepreneurial spirit from my parents growing up, saw the things they were doing, the arguments they had, money lost, money made, all these things along the way. So I sort of was accustomed to that also. And then it's kind of probably what happens to a lot of people that that had a, that were professional at some point. What do you do after that? What do you do with yourself after mm. that? You can't just crawl into a hole and and just die. I've always been working out and training since I was ten or twelve. Anyway, would sit up some push-ups, and so he still teased me. He'll come down here sometimes and he'll say, "I see you're still all jacked up." I'm like, "It's your <laughs> fucking fault, man." <laughs> And so sometimes I might not see him for a few months at a time. He's like, I see you're all jacked up, still in the gym, huh? I'm like, yeah, well, you created it. But I didn't get tired racing either. So uh, attrition was a big part of the endurance racing. So we'd race. The races were one hour long. Whoever's leading at the end of the hour wins. A lot of times I'd be long gone. I would not tire like everyone else. I was young. I was in shape from sit-ups and push-ups. They fed me protein, salads. I mean, it was a whole regimen. It was a whole thing. And um, getting back to what you were saying, after I finished that up, after I was done being depressed, I met a guy that's an MMA fighter. Um... now his son fights in Bellator. Mm. Uh, Antonio McKee and his son is AJ. His son right now is 12 or 13 and 0 in Bellator. I think his son is 21 now. Anyway, kind of drifted toward the MMA 
deal simply because of the discipline. Yeah. Uh, along with my regular workouts and all that, and my diet. And so, um, just always try to stay in shape, just because that's a way of life. But that's what happened with the MMA thing. But I wanted to run my own thing. I want to do my own thing. I want to be in charge of my own destiny. When you're a fighter, you are sort of. But the guy announcing and the guy that's president is making all the money off of you. So I wanted to flip the script, as they say. Run my own thing, be in charge of my own destiny. I want to be the boss. So I ended up here. And I bought this place simply because of the location. I did some research, obviously, also. And the owner was like, nah, I don't want to sell it. Nah, I don't want to sell it. I want to retire in a couple years, two, three years. So, talked to him a couple times, and I told him, I said, you know what? You're a little older than I am, I'm a little younger. In two or three years, I'm going to go buy something else. And when you're ready to retire, then what do you do? You have to have a buyer then. You got a buyer right now. Seize the moment, my friend. Mm. So I kind of left him with a little bit of fear, made him think, and he called me back. All right, kid, let's sit down and work it out. Here I am. So I believe that discipline that was instilled in me from the Marine when I was a kid is actually what kind of carries you through the rest of your life. I'm still disciplined, still bring my food every day, drink plenty of water, you know, everything is regimented. Uh, I do my meal prep, my own meal prep, and stay in the gym. Helps keep my head clear. Sounds like you have done something that a lot of racers struggle with or are unable to do once they're done in the cockpit, and that is create a new chapter Hmm. that is sustaining. It's so rough sometimes. Yourself, yeah, but something where you actually have a proper life for yourself. And that was what I when I made a bunch of money racing and other things I was doing. I had a bunch of money in the bank. He's no dummy to investments, portfolios, and he would tell me, "This is something that our society does not do enough of." This is your opportunity now. Give me a hundred thousand, couple hundred thousand, you're never going to see it again. But we're going to set you up your own portfolio. Some aggressive, not so aggressive. Maybe some mutual funds, whatever. Did that, never saw it again. However, I'm glad he did. Glad he did. Because what it does is it sort of sets you up for later. Just a little bit. Gives you sort of a head start. Even when you want to be an entrepreneur or you want to, you know, uh, venture off into the your next venture in life after you're in the seat. I still have the itch. I've gotten a couple offers for different things, but I don't think I can fit in the things. I was dieting down back then mm. to 175, 180. And it was kind of tough. And so now I'm well over 200, and I just to do that kind of dieting all over again. Oh, <laughs> at my age now, I don't, ears are still ringing, 
metal in my right knee, both legs broken, collarbone broken, metal in this one too, burned all over. You're a TSA nightmare uh, on, on, on flights. Some, I've got some scars, man. So when I do travel, I have this card that I got from the doctor about the metal. Because every time they go, it goes beep. And they start patting me down. I goes, there's no gun, there's metal. Metal? Yeah, there's metal in my knee, so it keeps it together. I broke the tibial plateau clean off, so I said, there's nothing holding it together. I go, you want to feel it? And a couple of the guys, they go, yeah. <laughs> I go, holy shit. It feels like metal. I go, it is metal. Kind of interesting stories. <laughs> George, fascinating, my man. I'm so thankful I've been able to find some time here to... Uh, at least, who knows? Maybe this is just a part one of a my racing life and career. Hopefully, maybe if I'm down uh, again sometime sooner. If not, maybe next year when I'm down for Long Beach, we'll uh, we'll tell some more stories. I get invited uh, pretty much every year to go to the 500 to do the veteran yeah. veteran autograph signing, um, and I enjoy that. They treat me really nice. It's cool to see uh, people. You know, they'll be in line. Man, I saw. I spoke to you at such and such. You signed an autograph for my son at such and such, you know, 15 years ago. Something like that. And that part is kind of fun, especially mm. when the kids come in. I love kids. And the little kids will come in, they'll have a picture of me. And a few years ago, I asked, I said, I asked one fan, I said, where'd you get this picture? I've never seen this picture of myself. And she says, oh, they sell them up front. Oh, they do? She goes, yeah. I said, how much? She said, this one was 10 bucks. We got a few of you. And then we got some Bobby Ray Hall. We just wanted, we have an autograph collection. I said, huh? And she goes, what? What's wrong? I said, nothing. I'm just not getting a piece of that. And that was George Mack and his father. Wow. What a true, true pleasure to have this opportunity to sit again with father and son. The son of Lloyd and Sandy Mack. Two folks who aimed high, achieved high, and distilled all of that into their son. What an amazing, amazing story. And I hope, I hope, amid a lot of things going on in this country right now, that we hope will have us in a better place, a more fulfilled and realized place thinking about George and what he achieved, albeit 18 years ago, it does serve as a reminder that when given an opportunity, those of different ethnic backgrounds, women, name what it is that is different from the norm in motor racing, absolutely rise to the challenge. Imagine if George had two years. Imagine if all three years of that contract happened to be completed with the proper resources. Uh, I think we'd be talking about someone who got his start one year after Scott Dixon started his IndyCar career, could very well still be going today. If this is your first time listening, would urge you to visit MarshallPruittPodcast.com where we have more than 800 episodes awaiting your listening pleasure. I want to say thank you to the Cooper Tire Company, to the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA, and to you. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is our Marshall Pruitt Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>